Good to see you all. It's been a couple, little while since I've been here, I guess, but the uh, heart is always here. Uh, my, my wife and I both grew up not too far from here. Uh, we had a day of mourning a couple of years ago, though, when uh, the good steer closed. We, uh, that was our first date, and uh, we, were, we were 16 years old, I think, when we, uh, we had dinner there, our first date. So uh, we used to go there for our anniversary, and uh, so we're, we're really still sad about that every time I go by, you know. Just to smell the burgers as you went drove by there on Jericho Turnpike, right? And the, car, the car just naturally would t- try, try to turn in, but, uh, but it's not there now. Let, let, let's, o- let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to, to, uh, to your word and to your spirit, Lord. Your spirit that you've given to us that, that uh, would uh, encourage us, that would lead us, that would open our eyes, Lord. It's, it's all you. And we just thank you, we praise you, and we pray that we'd be, once again, that we'd be more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, there's one other passage I want to read here from Tom Yensman. It's a really familiar one to all of you. If you have, if you have your Bibles, I'll, uh, it's just a quick one here, and it's in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. There's only two verses there we're going to read. You probably know these verses, right? It's, a, it's called the Great Commission, uh, and I, I just uh, we're going to get a little bit. I'm going to look at it a little differently today than I have before. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, praise God. That's a, a verse that is our, our commission. Uh, we call that. Uh, it's great. It's a it's a it's a great word. Uh, today, I, I I you know I started off going one way, and sometimes the Lord leads you d- down a different different way. But uh, I realized sometime that, that this that today, uh, today October 29th, is Reformation Sunday. I don't know how many of you know that, but it's, it's Reformation Sunday today. Uh, Reformation Day is Tuesday. Uh, We'd call it Halloween, I know, but it was All Hallows' Eve because uh, All Saints' Day was, or All Hallows' Day was uh, the first of November. It still is. We 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 even as Protestants celebrate that. We should, um, because it was when we we remembered all the martyrs of the church on uh, on that day. But uh, Reformation Sunday is a little different. It's when, uh, if the Protestant Church remembers according to tradition. On October 31st, 1517, that's 506 years ago, the Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed in Latin what's called the 95 Thesis, or Statements, or Points of Debate, on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 506 years ago. The posting of these points of debate led to the Protestant Reformation, of the church. That's where we are today because of, because of this event. Luther had no intentions of creating a revolution or a division in the church. He had no intentions of doing that at all. The themes that he wrote were written were, pro- were pro- propositions for a debate. They were written in Latin because this was a college town and Latin was the college language at that point in time. Luther was a professor at Wittenberg College, 
And he held the degree of Doctor of Theology at them. So he was entitled to, to engage in debate, in scholastic debate. That's what he wanted to do. This one had to do with indulgences. I don't know if you're familiar with indulgences at all. They were essentially buying and selling the forgiveness of sin. The church was doing this. Salvation in the church was at this time based on a scale system of works, weights and balances. Good, good deeds, bad deeds would go on the side. If your bad deeds went on this side, you'd spend more time in purgatory. If your good deeds went that way, you'd spend less time on purgatory. And indulgences were ways to buy your way into the good side, which is, which is kind, of, kind of a weird concept, but they, they determined that you could buy your way over to the good side of the scale. <laughs> and indulgences were not only good for you, if your parent or friend or someone, a relative died and they were going to spend too many years in purgatory, you could buy indulgences for them too. Whatever they owed on the bad side of the scale, you could buy your way for them to get back on the good side of the scale. As a matter of fact, there was a, uh, one of the guys who, uh, who, who was selling it, John Tetzel his name was, he was selling these indulgences, and he had this little saying that went, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that kind of irked Martin Luther. You see, Martin Luther, sin was very serious to him. And he was not only the professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, he was the town preacher there in Wittenberg also. And he had heard some of the people in the town going around saying, we no longer have to repent of our sins because we've bought indulgences. We bought our way over to the good side of the scale. And he, he took exception to that. And he thought he'd, he'd, he'd try and correct the problem. He saw it as a problem, that sin was more serious than just buying and selling. And he sought to correct the problem. The problem was that Luther believed that once the error was brought to, to light, others would see it and immediately try and correct it. He was wrong. If familiar, familiar with Martin Luther and the posting of the 95 Thesis, we have the picture in our minds of Luther coming up to the door with a hammer and, and nailing these things onto the door. It's very, a very dramatic and heroic scene in, in, our, in our history, but that's probably not what happened. The 95 Theses were not posted on October 31st, 1517. They probably weren't nailed, and Luther himself might not have even have put them up there. What happened on October 31st, 1517 is Luther mailed something. He sent a letter to Albert of, of, of Brandenburg, who was the archbishop there. His intention was to bring attention to, to, bring attention to what was going on here, that indulgence was, were being sold in his territory, and this practice was not according to scriptures. Unbeknownst to Luther, Albert was one of the forces behind the indulgence system. 
he needed money as much as Rome did, and all the indulgences that were sold in his area, he was getting a cut. Maybe, maybe a week or two after the letter went out, the posting went up on the, on the door of All Saints Church and other places in town. It was probably submitted by Luther to the sextant of the church who posted it on the door, which was the local bulletin board. If your dog ran away, you'd put your picture of your dog up here, you know. Or if you were selling a horse cart or whatever, you'd put that up on the bulletin board. It was the neighborhood bulletin board. And it was probably not nailed. He, they used to like paste the things up there. Not as, not as dramatic as Luther uh, nailing it there. I was just seeing the sextant pasting it on there, right? It would, wouldn't have been quite as dramatic. So, but we still have that scene in our, in our history. We don't know if the debate, it was a, it was a challenge to evade or a, or a, or a schedule to, to, a, to a debate, and we don't know if that debate ever happened. Probably didn't. But the Latin post, posting was translated into German, which was the common language of the people there. And being that probably 40 or 50 years before that, the printing press had been invented, and they started printing these things and sending them all over Germany it became a big story then. Luther never intended it to be that. He intended to have a debate in his college of this, but it became a national story. You see, Luther had taken sin seriously and for years had been trying unsuccessfully in his own part to relieve himself of the burden of it. I don't know about you if you ever had the burden of sin, but Luther had it. He would go to confessional and he'd spend hours in the confessional till the, the priest that was in there was tired of him. Luther would pick everything in his brain and try and see the sin in that. But, he, but he, he could never get to the point where he was finished with it. He was always sure he had something he hadn't confessed. Or he was sure that an evil thought would come to him right afterward. He was tortured by the burden of sin. And he saw this whole indulgence system as very wrong. But Luther suddenly, at one point, right about this same time, a light comes on. As he continued to search the scriptures, he saw something. He came face to face with grace. And he wrote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God and his, and is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. You get that? God is just and deals justly with punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk Confidence that my merit would satisfy him. I had no confidence that my merit would satisfy him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. If you keep trying to work your way to heaven, you're going to get very frustrated because it doesn't work. And that's exactly what Luther was going, experiencing there. It wasn't working. The more he tried, the more frustrated he got. He goes, Yet I clung to dear Paul and had great learning to know what he meant. 
Night and day I pondered till I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. In Romans 1.17. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through the grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. They were, do you see, the, do you see the, the, the two of them put together? The, the one side, the church was trying to buy and sell entrance into heaven because it was all based on the weights and balances system. I, I call it the Hitler-Mother Teresa scale. You put Hitler on one side, you put Mother Teresa on the, on the other side. If, you're, if your good works go over to that side and you tip that way, you're good. If you don't, they don't go that way, you're on the bad side. Problem is, we can't ever make it. Luther discovered that a right relationship with God had not to do with the scale system of good and bad works, but was totally dependent on the finished work of Jesus Christ and was available totally by the grace of God through the vehicle of faith. This led to a great awakening and a split in the church. The problem with grace, though, oh, and it's, uh, that, that's where we are today. That's where we get the personal responsibility, personal our personal relationship with God was right through here, right, what he discovered here at this point. He changed all of society, changed Germany, changed Europe, led to us here in the United States. The problem with grace, though, is that once you find it, you might be lulled into holding on to grace and forgetting everything else and thinking, it doesn't matter what I do, I have the grace of God to rely on. Once we give up on trying to be good and we realize that it's grace that makes me, I can say, and it doesn't matter what I do. I've got grace. That's fine. The German pastor later on, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, put it this way, and he was a little sarcastic when he wrote it. He said, let the Christian beware of rebelling against the, the free and boundless grace of God and desecrating it. Let him not attempt to erect a new religion of the com commandments of Jesus Christ. The world has been justified by grace. The Christian knows that and takes it seriously. He knows that he must not strive against the indispensable grace. Therefore, let him live like the rest of the world. Sometimes we... We think, okay, I've got Jesus in my back pocket. I can keep going and living and doing whatever I feel like doing. But that's not true either. Okay, so now that this brings me up to where I was going to, where, where I'm starting today. I'm just starting here, believe me or not. That was the background. It is Reformation Day, by the way. <laughs> Recently, I was teaching a class on becoming a disciple of Jesus. It's a class that I've taught a lot. I've taught it many times over the years. Most of you are probably familiar with the topics. It's a, usually a new believer's class or the first study in a new Bible study. So, so that uh, 
so that either people that are new to Christianity or people that are new to the church can know the doctrines of the church. There are several lessons or parts of, the, of our first, uh, the first section of it. Uh, on becoming a disciple, they're probably familiar to you all. The first one was the gospel message, right? That's the first, that's the first one we teach in the New Believers class. A problem, that, that, that problem that, the, that uh, Luther came across, that problem of sins that separates us from God, it's true, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that one, right? Very familiar to you all. The penalty of sin, you can probably quote the verse to me on that one, right? The second one, uh, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We know that the penalty for sin must be paid. You know, God is a just God. And remember, this is uh, probably 25 years ago. We said in the First Baptist Church, Pastor Adams was the uh, pastor there. And he would, he would throw out a bomb in the beginning of the sermon all the time. And then, then, would, then he'd explain the whole thing. But, the, but the, the bomb he threw out, and I don't know exactly how he worded it, but, but the, none of your sins are forgiven. Absolutely none of them are forgiven. There's not one single sin you've committed that's forgiven. Do you realize that? And then he went into the whole explanation of how every single sin that you committed had to be paid for because God is a just God, but the payment was on Jesus Christ. Everything that you've done, everything you did yesterday, today, and everything you're going to do tomorrow, that's a sin, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. None of them are free. He's not the kind of God that looks and winks and, and, and nods and says, okay, ah, that's the way they are, those kids, you know. Those kids, they're all paid for by Jesus Christ. Every sin that's committed. In Romans 5, 8, but God shows us that his, his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation is a free gift. Amazing. This is different than any other religion known to man. Do you know that? Salvation is a free gift. It's not a set of works. It's not a bunch of things that we have to do. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is a free gift. Not only did Jesus pay for that, your sins, but he offers that payment freely to you through grace. You must accept that free gift. I'm still in my first lesson on, on the uh, new, new Believers class. To all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a blessing that is. You realize that you've been adopted? You're children of God. John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That was the whole first lesson of the, of the discipleship class. But it, didn't end, it doesn't end there. The rest of the lessons have to do with discipleship, which is kind of neat, and it's, that's what kind of got me this time. I don't know why I've been teaching this class for years, but this, this time it just kind of hit me. A disciple. What is a disciple? I looked on the Webster uh, on a dictionary, and it said a disciple is one who accepts and assists in the spreading of the doctrines of another or a convinced adherent of a school or an individual. 
A disciple is not someone who just makes an intellectual assent. Yes. A disciple is someone who follows a person or a school. Tries to be like that. Tries to learn. Tries to do it. This is where the text where I got to the text today. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. For some reason, in my brain, all these years, it has been just, just preach the grace of gospel. But that's not what it says, does it? It says make disciples. Go and make disciples. What does that mean? I'll give it to you in four points that he's got here. Make disciples of all nations. What does that mean? What, this is the radical and glorious gospel. We live in a world now where there's a lot of problems, right? Do you know what the answer to every single one of those problems is? It's the gospel. There's no racial or ethnic group on this planet that the gospel is not the answer to their problem. The gospel should be breaking down every wall of separation between us. This was very radical to the Jewish people he was talking to at the time. They would have, they would have been perfectly happy to keep this all Jewish. But Jesus told them, go everywhere. And how many nations? All the nations. Preach it to everyone. Make disciples of every nation. The gospel would solve every problem that there currently is in this world today. It's the gospel that's the answer to the problem, not anything else, not any, not any kind of peace marches or anything like that. And you know what? You've got the answer. You have got the answer to the world's problems. Are you, are you telling anybody about it? Point one. Point two, baptism. Go, you, go forth into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The gospel calls for us for a public declaration of our allegiance to, with Jesus Christ. We are immersed into him, and that is a change in our identity. Romans 6, 3, and 4. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. We're called to a new life. I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer again. i got one more after this, too. So, <clears throat> As we embark on discipleship, we surrender ourselves to, in, in, to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We're called to be new people in Christ. 
That's point two, baptizing him. Baptizing. Immersion into Christ. We're, to, we're supposed to go down and come back up again as a, as a new person. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're called to be that new person. Now, this is the one that got me on this one. Maybe it gets you too, I don't know. Go, therefore, into make, uh, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The next line is, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I stopped at that one. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I've taught this class a lot. But when I taught this time, I asked myself, what were the things that, that Jesus commanded them? I've been a Christian for almost 50 years. I've read the Bible a bunch of times, read through the Bible beginning to end, many, many times. And I don't think I've ever tried to quantify or list or go through the Gospels and find the commands of Jesus. What did he command you to do? teaching them to observe all that I come in. I know some of them. So I listed them. I went through, a, and I, and I went through the, the New Testament and listed them, all the ones I could find. I came up with about 52, I think there was. It's pretty interesting. Most of them I pretty much know. I'm not going to go through every one of them here with you today. First one, repent. That's a command. Do you know that? Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Abide in me, and I in you. What does that mean, abide in him? We, do, you, do, do you actually take your... your and, he, and he goes through the whole thing about the, uh, the vine and the branches, giving that thing. Where, where does the branches get their stuff? You know, I, I did this, I don't know about you guys this year, but I went... Just in the past couple, week or two, I went through and cut everything down from, the, from the, the, all my summer plantings. I cut them all down. I cut them all back. Once I cut all branches down, what happens to the branches? The leaves all die on them. Why do they die? Because they're no longer abiding in the plant. We should be gaining, live, get, getting our sustenance, everything that, that gives us life from abiding with him. Let your light shine. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Wow, pretty cool. I just kept going through these things. I mean, like I said, I won't give you all of them. How about love your enemies? That's a tough one. I'm just going to pick a couple more out of here. Lay up treasures, lay up treasures not on earth, but in heaven. I just retired. About a year and a half ago, I retired from the Long Island Railroad. And, of course, maybe it's like some of you or some of, some of you don't. I had, I had you know, 401k plans and, and, and uh, 457 plans and an IRA. I've got a couple of these things here. And I looked at the, the numbers a year and a half ago when I retired, and I said, oh, that's pretty good. Guess what happened to those numbers over the past year and a half? Oh, my goodness, I'm losing money everywhere. 
And I'm all worried about it. And then they read this, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven, not on earth. And, I, and the Lord says to me, what are you doing here? You know, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. Don't talk to my wife about it. She'll tell you, she'll tell you I've been worrying about it. So, <coughs> Choose the narrow way. Fear not. Take my yoke upon you. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what always gets me. When did Jesus say this? Before he was crucified, he's telling his, his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. Forgive others. Render to Caesar and render to God, right? You know that passage. Render to Caesar what belongs to him and render to God what belongs to him. Love the Lord. He, I mean, he uses the Shema, right? He, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself and then goes into the whole thing about who our neighbor is. Who is our neighbor? And I think it comes down to just about everyone, right? Await my return. Be born again. Here's a good one. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I loved you. All, you also are to love one another. And I love the, the verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. It's right in there. They're going to know you're my disciples if you love one another. Doesn't say if your doctrine is 100% correct. It doesn't. I mean, not that, not that these things are wrong, but the, what's the defining factor of whether we're disciples of Jesus or not? Is our love for one another. I, like I said, I came up with about 50 of them. If, it, it, it's a good. I thought it was a good uh, exercise for me anyway, and it, and it would be for you too. I, I mean, there's like there's bunches of sermons in here too, so. All right. So what's a disciple? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We need to get back here to the main point. A disciple is one who accepts, assists in the spreading of the doctrines of another, or one who's a, co a convinced adherent of a school or individual. Are we being disciples? Are we look? Your disciple wants to look like the the, the, the teacher. Wants to be like the teacher. Is that the, the force in your life? Are you trying to do that? Are you working like that? Now here's the difference between what we started off with was that works-based system and the grace-based system. Grace is true. Absolutely. But it doesn't leave us there. A disciple isn't someone who just accepts Jesus as an intellectual assent. A, yes, I'm a sinner. B, yes, sin separates me from God. C, yes, Jesus paid for my sins. D, yes, I accept Jesus as my Savior. E, now I can go back to doing what I was doing before. No. That's not how it works. We have to observe all that he commanded us. That's what he's calling us to do. Always good to put numbers on your pages. 
Okay. I'm going to get back to now Reformation Sunday. We'll get back to seeing this as Reformation Sunday. Our friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer preached a message on Reformation Sunday in 1932 in the, in the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church in Berlin. It was the largest church in Berlin and was attended by the most important citizens of Berlin who went to church on Reformation Sunday, a holiday in Germany. It would be kind of comparable to Independence Day here. They expected to hear a message that would stroke their national egos so they could go, go home feeling good about themselves, have a big dinner with friends and relatives, and celebrate. It's not what they got. Even though Bonhoeffer was only 26 years old at the time, it should have been overwhelmed to be preaching a sermon in such a pre prestigious church as, as, and in an important holiday. Bonhoeffer saw a storm coming in Germany. And he saw the church resting in God's grace and sleeping. And he was going to do his best to wake that church up. There was a lot going on around them and the church didn't want to get involved. The text that he chose from, was from Revelation chapter 2, three verses of Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. He says, I know, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned your the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen and repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. Needless to say, that the message wasn't well received. The church was well versed on salvation by grace and through faith, but they were very comfortable in the world. Grace meant putting Jesus in your wallet and living just like the rest of the world. That's what it meant to them. We can't sleep. We've got to wake up. We've got to see what's going on around us. And we have to become disciples of Jesus Christ, following him wherever he leads. I can't, I can't tell you what you need to do but I can ask you, are you a disciple of Jesus or someone who just put Jesus in your back pocket and are living in the world? Matthew five fourteen through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Those are the first three steps in becoming a disciple. But the very end of it, he gives us encouragement and hope. And we, re we read about that in, in, uh, uh, in John chapter 14, the coming of the Holy Spirit, right? And he says in verse 20 of of, of Matthew chapter 28, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. We have an intercessor 
someone who is before the throne, who is there supporting you every day, every moment. And the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who encourages us in the right way, every day, every moment. I, I am always amazed when I think of Jesus before the, before the throne. My sin and the accuser accuses me and says, you're not worthy. But Jesus is before the throne saying, I, here's the blood I paid for that sin. Here it is. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For you today, he is making intercession before the throne, enabling us to become disciples. So not only has he given us this task to be disciples, this, the the, the, the the call is for the whole world, not just, not just us, not just, it's for everyone. He calls us to die and be, and be born again in Jesus Christ, a new person. He calls us to obey all the commands or, or observe all the commands that Jesus made. Do yourself a favor, look through the New Testament and find everyone you can find. Every command that Jesus gives find it. That's, that's the commission. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Look for the commands. And he's given us the Holy Spirit and he makes intercession for you every day in order to enable you to do this. You can't do it. But through the work of the Holy Spirit and through Jesus' intercession for you, we can. We don't need to sleep in the light. We should be awake and doing what he calls us to do. So on Reformation Sunday, think about these things. It's not... Whoops. Well, that didn't expect that. It's not just another Sunday. It's one that changed the, changed the way we do things change the world, change the way we see things. And uh, the grace of God lives in us to this day through that. All right, let's pray. Father, we just close our uh, eyes here. We come before you. We, we, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who came before, before who, laid, who, who, is the, who is our leader, Lord, who, whose disciples we long to be. We just ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, enable us through your Holy Spirit. We praise you, we thank you, we live to waiting for him, waiting for that day when he comes and brings us home again. We lift that up as we wait for the trumpet sound. We praise you and thank you in his name. Amen.